We're in Luke 10 again this week. Luke 10, we'll be looking verse 30 through 37. Back in 1973, uh, there was a landmark study at Princeton. Uh, among, among seminary students, they were asked if they would take part in this study, and 67 of them did. And they were told it was about religious education and vocation, but really it was an experiment in social psychology. The students were taken to a room and asked to fill out a personality questionnaire which they did, and then they were told they'd be going to another building on campus to speak on one of two subjects, either on the subject of jobs available to seminary grads or on the subject of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The students were sent to the other building one at a time. And some of them were told that they had a few minutes before they needed to be there. Some of them were told that the staff in the other building was waiting for them right then, and others were told that they were already late and they needed to hurry. So each participant took off for that other building, and each one encountered a man who was an actor, lying on the ground, doubled up, and coughing violently. Among the group that was going to talk about employment opportunities who were assigned to do that, three out of four failed to stop for that fellow. But most of the people in the other group that was supposed to speak on the Good Samaritan stopped, most of them. But that distinction didn't hold in that subgroup if they, if they were in that subgroup that was told they were late already and needed to hurry. In fact, one of the Good Samaritan seminary students actually stepped over the seriously ill man who had placed himself in the doorway of the building to which he was going. Just walked right over top of him. That ought to give us pause since we're talking about the Good Samaritan day. And I think if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us. It won't be so obvious. But we can talk and say, oh yeah, that's great, we ought to do that, and utterly fail. Let me read the story, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The good old Scott George MacDonald said, God is looking for someone who will do the will of God. Not understand it, not care about it, not theorize it but do it. Last week we saw a law scholar engage Jesus on a theological question. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? To have a place in the, in the age to come. Jesus turned that question right back on the law scholar and asked him, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? And the scholar gave a good answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said to him, great answer. Now do it, not understand it, not care about it, not theorize it, but do it. 
and you'll live. Now this scholar had done a lot of theorizing about it in his lifetime. He tried to understand it, really cared about it, but he hadn't done it. And he suddenly felt exposed, and he didn't like it. He wanted to get this conversation back on an abstract plane, but he wanted to justify himself, Luke says. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When I see how quickly this man found a path to self-justification and how he transitioned to it with such agility, I think he must have had a lot of practice. We get good at what we do regularly, and he was good at this. Not that it did him any good. See, the trouble with justifying yourself is no one outside yourself in the tiny circle of your friends will buy into it. It's like the Zimbabwean dollar when they had their own currency, which they did until recently. A few years ago, Zimbabwe had more billionaires than any nation on earth, and most of them were going hungry. That's because a billion Zimbabwean dollars was worth about 70 cents American. Self-justifications like a Zimbabwean dollar, nobody wants it. You can't give it away. Nobody cares. The scholar tried to justify himself, and he did it by turning Jesus' concrete statement into an abstract question. He was desperate to keep this thing theoretical, so he asked, and who is my neighbor? Now, to him, that seemed a valid and important question, and frankly, a much safer one. So when Moses wrote, love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus 19.18, everyone knew who their neighbor was. Their neighbor was their fellow Israelite. But by the law scholar's time, there were many foreigners living in Israel. Uh, There were regions like the Decapolis where foreigners actually outnumbered Jews. There were even temples to foreign gods on Israeli soil. There were foreign soldiers patrolling Jerusalem streets. And so the the, the law scholar says, who is my neighbor? Surely not the Roman soldier, he's not my neighbor. Surely not a Gentile, he's not my neighbor. It's not that this guy said, I'm unwilling to love my neighbor. He just didn't want to love the wrong one. Didn't want to love somebody unless it was necessary to enter the age to come. So you remember the question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's how this all started. How many Christians have that same attitude? What must I do? Do I have to go to church to get to heaven? No? Well, then I'll go when I can, when it's convenient, and I won't worry about it otherwise. Do I have to read the Bible to get to heaven? No? Then I'll read it when I feel like it, but otherwise I won't worry about it. In answer to the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus tells the story I just read to you, which is absolutely brilliant. He knows this this law scholar will parry every direct truth, so he uses the story to get past his defenses. He begins, a certain man, now he doesn't say whether the man was a Jew or a Gentile, a Greek or a Samaritan, doesn't classify him in any way, his friend or foe. He tells the story in such a way, in fact, with a man stripped and beaten senseless, that it's impossible to know what his nationality is. He's simply a human being. That's the way Jesus wanted it. This man is traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which we know from contemporary historical accounts was full of danger. It was and is a spectacularly barren place. There there are places on this road where you can turn in a 360-degree circle and not see a single growing or green thing. 
just brown. Rocks and mountains and caves. Gangs of thugs were known to hide out along this road during these years. Surprise travelers and do exactly what Jesus tells us happened to this poor man. So Jesus then introduces three other travelers into the story. They all come, coincidentally, within sight of a person who is in terrible need of help. They were nigh him. They were for a short time nigh boars, neighbors. Remember Jesus answering the question, who is my neighbor? Now, I just said coincidentally, because that's the word Jesus used. I know some people say there's no such thing as coincidence. And I know what they mean, that even the, the odd concurrence of events has a causal relationship in the will of a sovereign God. But coincidence is the word Jesus uses. The original is something like, by coincidence, a certain priest was going down the same road. And Jesus isn't denying God's sovereignty, but he's making it clear that the characters in his story were caught off guard, rather like those Princeton seminarians. Now, unexpected things happen to people all the time. So how do we know which ones are important? How can we know whether we should get involved or whether we ought to mind our own business? I was coming home from town the other day in the rain. I saw a car on the shoulder of the northbound lane with its flashers on. I immediately wondered whether I should turn around and go back and see if I could help, but I didn't. The car was was quite a bit newer than mine, so I, I reasoned he's probably not having car trouble. And I thought the guy would have a cell phone. I mean, everybody has a cell phone, right? <laughs> I say that when I don't have a cell phone, but he probably did. And, and the last few times I've stopped for cars that were on the side of the road, the people didn't want my help. They just pulled off the road to take a call or to answer a text or or they'd already called the tow truck and they were just waiting for it. So at any rate, I drove by. But was that the right thing? See, we can always find reasons not to get involved. What if I was wrong? What if he needed help? How can a person know? Think about that. We'll come back to it in a few moments. Three travelers traveling the same road. They had that in common. Here's something else they had in common. They all saw the same thing. A man lying on the road, unclothed and motionless. They saw the same thing, but they saw it differently. The priest and the Levite saw an inconvenience and a risk. They saw a time-consuming, energy-expending, cash-draining, personal investment, which would certainly yield no return. And yet Jesus' hearers who are listening to the story probably would have given the priest and the Levite the benefit of the doubt. They must have had a good reason. Uh, they're probably trying to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the kind that comes from touching a dead body. Or they're afraid of getting beaten up and robbed by the same gang that beat up the traveler. Jesus doesn't say this, though. He doesn't give any explanation or excuse for their behavior. The human mind is a justification-making machine. A person who is good at it like the law scholar in this story, can come up with a solid justification for a questionable action on the spot. The priest and Levite would have told themselves and other people that it was foolish to try to help this man. They didn't even know if he was alive. And if he wasn't, that, they would make themselves ceremonially unclean for nothing. And if he was, 
he'd probably die anyways. Or that same gang that beat him and robbed him would do the same to them. And the Book of Wisdom states, if you do good, know to whom you do it. Give to the one who's good. Do not help the sinner. How could they know whether this man was a sinner or not? They couldn't even ask him. See, the mind will always find reasons to support the choices the heart makes. See, that's the mind's job. It's not bad, it's natural. It's not bad, but because we're sinners, it's dangerous. This is the reason that people can argue ad infinitum over every issue. Immigration, war, the economy, politics, guns, and everyone is convinced that reason is on his or her side. This is why the same data can be and often are used to support contradictory positions because the mind serves the heart. So if the heart, the center of a person, is wrong, nothing will be right and the person won't even know it because the mind serves the heart. So if the heart doesn't serve God, a person's life can't be right. Something else here that the travelers had in common. They all had a choice to make. Now you might say the priest and Levite didn't make a choice, but choosing not to choose is still a choice, a choice for which people are held responsible. You know, sometimes the choices we don't make say as much or even more about us than the choices we do make. The priest was going down from Jerusalem. That suggests he had just completed his yearly service at the temple. So during this period, there were so many priests that they didn't serve regularly at the temple, or they served regularly, but that only was once a year for one month. And this priest probably had just served his time at the temple, been taking part in worship and offering sacrifices. He's coming off a religious high. As he walked, he's probably whistling victory in Jesus or singing 10,000 reasons or whatever the first century version of those songs was. And then he saw a body bruised and battered. And as soon as he saw it, he went into self-protection mode. Now, that's not a sin. The self-protective reflex is a natural response to a potential threat. We all experience it. We can't help it. That response is not what defines us. But what we do next just might. Jesus' people have the same self-protective reflex that other people have. But they mustn't allow it to control them. They mustn't allow other people's opinions or the protection of their financial assets or the maintenance of their health to govern their choices. A disciple's safety is not his or her first concern. Or second, or maybe even third. The priest and the Levite, they acted naturally, but not neighborly. That is to say, not godly. It was a Samaritan, the very last person to whom the law scholar would attribute anything good. It was a Samaritan who acted neighborly, who acted godly. All right, we've seen a couple of things that travelers had in common. Now look at what they didn't have in common. Only the Samaritan had compassion. The NIV says, took pity.
pity on him. It's the Greek word splachnon. It's a word that's repeatedly used to describe Jesus himself. And it is one of the defining characteristics of his people. A person who's becoming more Christ-like is becoming more compassionate. Instead of retreating into self-protection, that person's heart is increasingly going out to others in love. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of God. And it is a costly way. It means giving. God so loved, he gave. Jesus gave his life. In this story, the Samaritan gives his time and his money. And that's what happens when we love our neighbors. We give. For Mike so loved his neighbor, he gave his only day off. He gave his attention. He gave his money. Loving your neighbor means giving. Attention, time, money. And it means giving up, control, comfort, privacy. Now, a great many Christians are ready, theoretically, to give in order to love their neighbor. But for some reason, in real life, they never do it. Why is that? I think it's because of that first reflex of the heart toward self-protection. And as soon as the heart turns away from the neighbor, the mind justifies the decision. Had the Samaritan crossed to the other side instead of staying in his lane, you can be sure he would have found a dozen reasons for not helping, and they would have been good ones. He would have reasoned, well, we're just outside Jerusalem, so this guy's almost certainly a Jew, and a Jew wouldn't want my help. If he could, he'd probably refuse it. Besides that, he wouldn't do it for me. And then there's the money this thing's going to cost, money I need to pay bills. And then there's the time it's going to take. I wanted to be in Jericho tonight. I have an appointment in the morning. And what if someone sees me bending over this guy and thinks I'm the one who beat him up? They think I stole his money. And you know, that's just what a Jew would think. And besides that, the gang who beat him up might be using him as bait to trap the next guy who stops. And so it goes. The clever mind can come up with dozens of reasons on the spot for not loving a neighbor. And the spiritual mind can only come up with one reason to love a neighbor. Jesus told us to. This month we're learning to love our neighbors. <clears throat> we're doing more than that. We're encouraging each other to take chances to step out of our comfort zone, and to show love in specific ways to people. But you know what? We'll never succeed if we don't realize that our reflex action will be to self-protect. That reflex action will stop us cold and prevent us from doing what Jesus said. And then our minds will go to work, providing us with a dozen excuses to assuage our consciences and make us feel better. And the upshot will be we won't do what Jesus says, we won't love our neighbor, and we'll convince ourselves that that's all right. And nothing will change. You need to know that in advance. You need to know it's coming so you can resist it. Instead of giving in to the self-protection reflex, you need to, you'll have it. But instead of just obeying it, you need to question your reasons Usually, they come in the form of what-if questions. What if I do this? Question your questions. 
when the self-protective reflex comes, one of the things that will be on your mind will be that you don't have time. I don't have time for this. Which is what those Princeton seminarians told themselves. If you don't have time today, that's one thing. Everybody gets busy. If you never have time, that's another. If you don't have time to love your neighbor, then you are not. You are not doing things that are God's will for you, and you are doing things that are not God's will for you, and you're going to have to make some changes. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Your mind will also tell you that someone else can do it. The other day when I didn't stop for that car, I was southbound, and he was on the northbound shoulder, and there were a half dozen cars going the same direction as him, passing him by at that moment. And it's easy for me to think, if there really is a problem, somebody else will stop. That's exactly what people told themselves in a famous psychology experiment at NYU. People were placed in separate rooms. There's a whole long story behind this, but I don't have time to share all that. But they heard a man speaking over an intercom, and he seemed to have a seizure, and he cried out for help. And only four of the 15 participants in the study ran to help. The others assumed that somebody else would do it. Somebody else is hearing this, and they'll do it. But that just brings us back to this question. How can we know for sure if it's something that we should get involved in? And the answer is we can't. What we can do, what the Samaritan did and the priest and the Levite didn't do, is get close enough to find out. Verse 33 says, he came where the man was. We can get close enough for God to speak to us, for his compassion to flow through us. The priest and the Levite didn't get close. In fact, they went out of their way to avoid getting involved. I think God wants us to stay in our own lane. And I think partly that means that we don't go noising into everybody else's business. But when our path crosses someone else's in their time of need, we need to assume God wants us to love that person. If you find yourself changing lanes to avoid involvement, changing plans, thinking of ways to sidestep responsibility, you've probably already given in to that self-protective reflex. We have that reflex just like everyone else, but we mustn't allow it to control us. That's exactly what a group of Christians living in Nazi Germany did. And let me tell you their story. This is from a man who wrote about it after the war. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? There's the mind justifying the heart's choice. He said a railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we would hear cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time when the train was coming. You know, it's going to pass by at whatever, 11.25 every Sunday morning. And when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. 
by the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. And this is how it ends. He says, years passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. See, those German Christians justified their act inaction in a hundred ways. You can read about it in history books. But nobody bought it. Any more than people are buying Zimbabwean dollars. Any more than God will buy our reasons for not doing what Jesus said and loving our neighbors. God, you know how we work. I pray you'll interrupt that progression of the wrong heart choice and then the mind's defense and speak into our lives and give us grace to love our neighbors for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>